Welcome to Saints. In this podcast, we'll be discovering and discussing fascinating insights to topics and events found in Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the latter days. This new four-volume narrative is a history of the Restoration. You can also read it and all the material we'll be discussing today on LDS.org or on your Gospel Library app. And now, Saints. I'm Ben Godfrey, and today I have two wonderful guests with me. First, a Ph.D. historian and writer at the Church History Department in Salt Lake City, Jed Woodworth. Welcome, Jed. Thanks so much, Ben. Also joining us today, we have Sarah Eyring, who works here at the Mormon Channel. She's recently had the opportunity to read Saints Volume 1, and she'll be sharing her thoughts and questions. Welcome, Sarah. I'm happy to be back. Thank you. So today, Jed, we're going to be talking about Chapter 15 of Saints called Holy Places. This chapter begins with Phoebe Peck watching her children be baptized in, in Zion, in Missouri. Jed, tell us a little bit about what's going on as we begin Chapter 15. Well, the saints have been in Zion, uh, near Independence, for about a year, and uh, people are starting to stream in. And Phoebe belonged to a group um, of saints who had come from New York uh, called the Colesville Branch, and they consisted of about 20 families or 60 people or so who had come in mass down to Independence. This scene is significant because it teaches us something about women and preaching. We tend to think of missionary work in the early church as having been performed by men. Men go out, leave their homes, and the women are left to take care of children. But in this case, Phoebe is writing back to friends in New York, telling them about her excitement of the revelations that she has been reading in the newspaper. And this is, of course, the the saint's paper called the Evening and Morning Star. So it gives us a glimpse into how women who were constrained by traditional roles at that time could still show their exuberance in uh, the restored gospel and how they were able to share that gospel with friends. There is a beautiful quote in in one of the the letters that uh, is quoted in the book where she's telling her friend, you know if you were here, you'd find it's not so bad. It's, this is a good place because the gospel's here. I'm not quoting directly, of course, but that's kind of the feeling that she's, she's writing this letter to tell her friend who might, maybe she's a little bit skeptical about why she'd gone off to live in the wilderness, basically. And in her own way, she is testifying of the, of the truth and of the reason for being there. Well, I think that she was thrilled to have a prophet's voice so near. She, of course, was separated from the leadership of the church by a thousand miles. They were in Kirtland at the time. But nonetheless, she was reading the revelations as they were sent from Kirtland down to Zion and then being published in the LDS paper, the Evening and Morning Star. And the thrill of hearing a prophet's voice and being able to order her life under the prophetic voice was was very exciting. And especially the, the revelation that she was referring to in one of her letters, which is the revelation we know today as DNC 76, and the idea that there is a celestial glory and three degrees of heaven. And so she was explaining that to her friend back in New York. So while Phoebe is having this experience, Joseph and maybe somebody else goes with him to visit New York City. Why do they go? What's the purpose of this trip? 
Well, this time, Joseph and his traveling partner, Newell Whitney, are members of a small business syndicate in Kirtland called the United Firm. And so they organize this group in order to pool their capital together. So they go to New York to buy goods. Uh, Another thing that they have going on in Kirtland is they have a store. And at this time, Ohio is on the frontier of the United States. And so there aren't as many goods in Ohio as there would be in the East. So they go to New York where there's an abundance of, of goods. And in addition to going to buy goods for the store, Joseph goes to preach. And this gives a a glimpse into Joseph's zeal for the message, but also I would argue it shows his sincerity. In in addition to preaching there and and having a picture into Joseph's character, this is really the first time Joseph's ever been to a big city. I don't know the size of cities around the world, but I believe New York was around 200,000 people. This is a very large place. It's certainly very different than upstate New York or the the, uh, western edges of Ohio. uh, let's listen to just a little quote here from the book that talks about what this experience was like for Joseph and uh, for Newell Whitney. Arriving in New York City, Joseph was astonished by its size. Tall buildings towered over narrow streets that stretched for miles. Everywhere he looked were shops with expensive goods, large houses and office buildings, and banks where wealthy men transacted business. People of many ethnicities, occupations, and classes hurried by him, seemingly indifferent to others around them. So, Jed, what was Joseph's experience like in New York? Well, he was amazed by what he saw in New York City. As you pointed out, he had never been in a city this size of 200,000 people. He'd been to St. Louis and and Cincinnati, but these were relatively small cities, 25,000 or thereabouts. But I think that the letter home to Emma represents the clearest expression of Joseph's embrace of what we might call the humanistic tradition. So we know that revelations received later in the year will speak of embracing the best books, studying out of the best books, and learning things above the earth and beneath the earth and so on. But Joseph is seeing something different in New York than books. He is seeing production, human production. He's seeing architecture, as Goethe calls our great architecture, frozen music. He's seeing the beauty of creation. And he asks himself, when he sees these truly great and wonderful buildings, can the great God of all the earth, maker of all things magnificent and splendid, be displeased with man for all these great inventions? And he he answers, no. It cannot be... Uh, seeing these works are calculated to make men comfortable, wise, and happy. But then what is God's displeasure in what Joseph sees? Because he, he does go away from New York feeling as though there's a problem. And he concludes that the problem is that, that many people in the city have not acknowledged God as giving them this order of creation. That is, they haven't given God the glory for what they were creating. Of course, there is this phrase in the Revelations that in nothing doth God, is God displeased except those who do not acknowledge his hand in all things. That to me is a suggestion that we can embrace great humanistic tradition, say coming out of the Renaissance and other cultures around the world, but we must acknowledge that God is the supplier of the talent. 
and he is the giver of the ideas. And if we don't, then he's displeased with us for, for not acknowledging that. That's an excellent thought. Helps us have a little picture of just how Joseph is developing and learning. He's going to learn a little bit more um, by meeting someone who will become important in his life and in the life of the church. Tell us a little bit about um, how Joseph meets Brigham and, and what, what their first encounter is like. So what's interesting about Brigham Young's appearance in Kirtland is that he had converted to the church without ever having met Joseph Smith. So this is sort of the classic missionary case where you do not first appear in Kirtland and meet the prophet and are convinced by his charisma, but rather you learn about the church through a book. And in in Brigham Young's case, he learned about the church uh, through Samuel Smith having uh, dropped off a copy of the Book of Mormon in New York to Brigham's sister Rhoda and her husband John Green, and that book traveled through the Young family, converted the entire family, including Brigham Young, and then converted uh, Brigham's best friend Heber C. Kimball. And so when Heber and Brigham and Brigham's brother Joseph show up in Kirtland in the fall of 1832, They have already been a part of the church. They've already done missionary work, but they had never met Joseph. And so this was a chance for Brigham Young to meet for the first time the translator of a book that he already had a testimony of by this point. Let's listen to a little clip here from the book that talks about this first meeting and perhaps a unique experience that some of our listeners uh, may have questions about. Following the meal, Joseph held a small meeting and invited Brigham to pray. As he bowed his head, Brigham felt the Spirit move him to speak in an unknown language. The people in the room were startled. Over the last year, they had seen many people mimic the gifts of the Spirit with wild behavior. What Brigham did was different. Brethren, I shall never oppose anything that comes from the Lord, Joseph said, sensing their discomfort. That tongue is from God. Joseph then spoke in the same language, declaring that it was the language Adam had spoken in the Garden of Eden, and encouraging the saints to seek the gift of tongues, as Paul had done in the New Testament, for the benefit of the children of God. So this experience, I think, to many of our listeners, will be new. Jed, can you give us a little bit of uh, understanding of what the saints at that time understood the gift of tongues to be, and maybe even help us understand this a little bit, because it seems a little foreign to us. So Brigham Young came out of a background where he had belonged to a church and a movement called Primitive Methodism. And Primitive Methodists and other churches of that ilk believed that uh, the ideal church was not upon the earth, and that the ideal was uh, a pattern already found in the New Testament. And in the New Testament, there are several references to speaking in tongues, the most prominent being Acts chapter 2, where on the day of Pentecost, there are Christians who have come from all over uh, the region in, uh, in Palestine. Many of them are not able to understand each other. They speak different languages, but in a spiritual outpouring on that day, they suddenly were able to understand each other and spoke in a common language. So Brigham Young was able to speak in this tongue and 
Joseph Smith was able to understand it and interpret it. It may seem strange to us today, but in that place and time, there were many people who longed for this kind of speaking in tongues. The reference to Paul in the quote that you read. The Apostle Paul speaks of speaking in tongues in 1 Corinthians 12 as uh, being among the gifts of the Spirit. But there are different ways that tongues can be spoken. In the 19th century, it was more common for tongues to be an unknown language or a language that required interpretation. In the 20th century, the saints um, spoke in tongues in a different way. And that way is the way that you referenced earlier, which is you have a supernatural ability to speak a language or an accelerated pace. However, there are instances where missionaries and authorities have been able to speak in a language, even in the 20th century, uh, that they didn't know fluently, or they were able to understand a language that was being spoken in a meeting. So we never want to put limits on what God can do. Right. And there are diversity of operations, as the Revelation says, uh, that allow the gifts of tongues to be manifest in different ways and in different forms according to the needs of the saints and according to, really, the background of the saints. Thank you for that explanation. That's really helpful. And I would just invite our listeners, if this is something you're curious about, there's actually a topic that goes along with this chapter called the gift of tongues. And it does a really wonderful job at explaining the different ways, uh, as Jed has just explained, that the, the saints and the members of the church have understood this gift over time and has some really great references if you want to dig deeper and learn more. So in the previous episode, we talked a little bit about Joseph Smith's revelation or vision or prophecy concerning the Civil War. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? It's described in this chapter in a little more detail. DNC 87, the revelation we now know as DNC 87, is unique in many ways. It has a number of specific markers that, that pertain to events going on at the time. So South Carolina is mentioned. There's no other revelation that refers to the name of the state. Slaves is mentioned. Masters is mentioned. And so the context of this revelation is clearly a debate that is going on at the time in November and December of 1832 between the state of South Carolina and the federal government. And at this time, the, the executive of the federal government is Andrew Jackson, the president of the United States. And the problem that South Carolina has is that they believe that a tariff that Andrew Jackson and his legislature in Washington, D.C. has passed is going to hurt the cotton farmers of South Carolina and is going to unfairly benefit northern manufacturing in the east. And, and so the legislature of South Carolina threatens that they will lead the Union of States, and they, uh, this is called the nullification crisis. They say, if you do not change this tariff, we will leave the Union of States. And this is widely believed to be uh, really a sign of war, uh, where the federal troops in Washington are going to come down to South Carolina and enforce the tariff, and South Carolina is going to dig in its heels and muster out its regiments. So in this context, the revelation is received. And what I like to, to say about this revelation is I believe that there are many revelations that have multiple fulfillment of, of prophecy. So 
In the Book of Mormon, Jesus has a line where he speaks of Isaiah to the Nephites. He says, all the words of Isaiah have been and will be. And so for the brethren at this time, they must have understood DNC 87 as pertaining to the nullification crisis. But the interesting thing about this crisis is it actually ends peacefully, and yet the revelation foreshadows war and bloodshed that shall spread to all nations, is the language. Well, we know that 30 years later, the Civil War is yet another context where this revelation fits, because 30 years later, South Carolina will initiate the bloodiest conflict in U.S. history, the U.S. Civil War. The tone of the revelation, although it is apocalyptic and bloodshed is a theme, it does not end in doomsaying, meaning it does not end with, well, there's no hope or the world is going to go up in smoke. It actually ends in an injunction to stand in holy places and be not moved. And much of the rest of this chapter that we're discussing today is about the holy places. So where do we stand? If the world is um, in commotion and in conflict, what, do, what are we to do? Where are we to go? And how are we to arrange our lives in relation to that conflict? One of those holy places that you mentioned that would come to mind, I think, for most, most of us will be the temple. And in fact, in this chapter, we, we learn that the saints are commanded... In fact, let me just read here directly from the, the chapter, that your minds may be single to God. To their surprise, he directed them to build a temple in Kirtland and prepare to receive his glory. Organize yourselves, the Lord said. Prepare every needful thing and establish a house, even a house of prayer, a house of fasting, a house of faith, a house of learning, a house of glory, a house of order, a house of God. This is a, a revelation that we're super familiar with, we've read many times. This revelation is very interesting because it is a command to build a temple in Kirtland. The odd thing about it was that there was already a command to build a temple in Independence. So the question is, why do we why? need a second temple? Right. The answer appears to be that the saints in Independence had not acted fast enough. So they had had a year and a half to work on this temple, and there had been absolutely no progress made. Now the Lord says, well, if you are not going to make progress on this temple, we will find a people who will make progress on a temple, and we will build it in a stake of Zion. Not in Zion, but in a stake of Zion. And that really sets the template for our modern practice of building temples in stakes of Zion, not in the center place, but rather in the stakes of Zion around the world. But I think the message for us is no one is irreplaceable. And if you do not carry out the mission that the Lord has given to you, right. he will find someone else to do it. Right. So you mentioned holy places, and of course that's the title of this chapter. Um, so another holy place that we visit in this narrative is the School of the Prophets. Can you describe the purpose of that and who would have been a part of that school? Yeah. So at that time, the elders were going out to preach the gospel, and the elders had various degrees of learning. Some of them were more learned than others. Some of them lacked very basic rudiments. 
And so the School of the Prophets was designed not only to teach them theological principles that they would use as they went out and preached, but, but also basic learning like reading, writing, arithmetic, grammar, things of this kind. And it was an effort to fulfill the revelation, the olive leaf that we just discussed, uh, which is today DNC 88, where there are quite ambitious injunctions about learning there. So this was an attempt to fulfill that revelation. And Joseph had learned through experience when the Lord commands something, you should do it. Now, what's interesting about this school uh, is that there was a tradition that these men had inherited, which was that wherever you are in a public meeting, it is acceptable to get out your pipe and to mm-hmm. put in tobacco and smoke the pipe, even to chew tobacco. And there seemed to be a contradiction. The Lord had just said, we want you to establish a house of glory, a house of God, a house of order. And tobacco spitting on the floor did not seem to be fitting of a house of glory. And... What's fascinating about this episode is um, that it does involve Joseph's wife, Emma. And for many years, we believe that, that the, really, the prompt for the revelation known today as DNC 89 was that Emma complained about the floor. She did not cl- like cleaning a floor that was dirty with tobacco spittle. But in fact, we now know uh, via... Uh, the reading of the original shorthand where Brigham Young talks about the problem there in the School of the Prophets was that it wasn't that she complained about the floor. It's that she she was upset that she was not able to get out the stains, which is slightly different. It shifts it from Emma complains to more that Emma is a hard worker and is not able to be as perfectionistic as she would like. And so Emma is involved in this. She complains to Joseph and says, this is a problem. I'm not able to get the floor clean. And, and he goes to the Lord and gets a revelation. And that DNC section 89, the revelation you mentioned is the word of wisdom. Is that right? That's correct. And the, the word of wisdom, besides being a revelation that answers this very personal problem of Emma, it also answers a church problem, which is the contradiction I mentioned earlier, that you have these elders who are learning about the things of God, and yet the, the dirt and the filth and the smoke um, associated with their tobacco habit didn't seem to be consonant with that. So at this time, there was widespread temperance reform. So these were societies that were formed to to exact pledges from people to stop drinking. Uh, There was widespread abuse of alcohol in the early American Republic, and by the 1820s, that had started to be uh, reformed. And even Kirtland had a temperance society. There were so many different claims swirling around that the saints needed a way of arbitrating between these claims. And so... The Word of Wisdom works on a number of levels, the personal, the church, and the cultural. It is a fascinating episode, and I I love that detail of knowing Emma wanted to get it clean. More than just complaint, it was, I can't fix this. There is a topic associated with this chapter about the Word of Wisdom, 
it does a fantastic job of explaining how the Word of Wisdom was received, the cultural um, aspects at the time, the context of the culture, rather, and also how it developed over time and how, as a church, we have understood and practiced the Word of Wisdom and come to accept it today as a commandment uh, for the whole church. So I would just, it, there's a fantastic video by a couple of excellent scholars and uh, some wonderful explanation there um, that really helped me to, to get a much better understanding about how right. the Word of Wisdom developed and, and our understanding of it has developed over time. Well, and I appreciate you bringing that up, Ben, because uh, sometimes when people learn that the Word of Wisdom has been understood and practiced in different ways, they get concerned. They right. think that 19th century saints are somehow sinning or they're falling short from what modern-day saints are being asked to do. And really, that's not fair to 19th century saints. They are coming out of a different context, a different world, a world, as the topic explains, where alcohol abuse was widespread. Clean water was difficult to come by. Milk spoiled. There was no refrigeration. So this is a culture where alcoholic beverage was consumed in great quantities. And so moderation was the rule, but the brilliance of the revelation and God's language, from my point of view, is that it can be interpreted in different ways over time according to the circumstances of the saints. So in the, in the 20th century, as you suggested, uh, there was a more exacting standard that was asked of the saints, and we're under that exacting standard. I don't think any of us would think that that's not a maturation. Right. That is a good thing, that we've gone forward. And, of course, Latter-day Saints today are known around the world for their exacting standard of keeping the word of wisdom. Thank you again, Jed, for joining us. Uh, Sarah, thank you for being here. And thanks to all of you for tuning in today. Please join us again for our next episode. And to learn more, you can always find out the latest information, videos, uh, topics, and updates at saints.lds.org. You can also read or listen to Saints in the Church History section of the Gospel Library app. Finally, to download this episode and to subscribe, visit mormonchannel.org. I'm Ben Godfrey. Thank you for listening. Thanks for joining us today for Saints. And don't forget to read more of this historical narrative on lds.org or on your Gospel Library app. Join us again for our next episode, where we'll once again discover fascinating insights of church history found in Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the latter days. Thank you.